Welcome to New Freedom Church. Our mission is to be real people walking and experiencing real freedom. If you're new with us, please like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel so you get new content immediately when it's released. And we want to thank those of you who have shared our videos because it helps us to reach even more people with the life-changing message that there is a Savior who loves you and wants real, genuine freedom for you. And if you haven't done so already, go to newfc.org. Go to the Connect tab and share with us how we can best connect with you and your family to serve your needs. Welcome back to part two of We Are the Church. Somebody say that with me. We are the church. My name is Joe Schutz. I have the privilege of serving as lead pastor here at New Freedom. If I haven't met you, I would love the opportunity to do so. We can meet digitally online. There's a connection card. Or if you want to linger around just a few minutes after service, I'll be in the lobby. We'd love to shake your hand and get to know you just a little bit. Uh, Last week, I had the privilege of speaking to you about probably my favorite message of the year. I've I've done this message the last couple of years. It's probably a message I will do every single year, and it is a message about how we as the people of God get mobilized to reach our world for Jesus. Isn't that an exciting message? That's an exciting message. The, The call that Jesus gave to his disciples at the end of Matthew 28 goes a little something like this. He says, go ye therefore into all the earth. Where are we to go? To, to Lebanon, just to stay in the tri-state, stay in this area. No, we are to go to all of the world bringing about this good gospel message that because of what Jesus did on the cross and he rose on the third day, we can have freedom and we can have eternal life. That is good news. That is the message of the gospel. And we are to go to make disciples of all nations. And there's a a component there of baptizing or someone coming into the identification of the family of God. And and here's the promise that he gives us. He will be with us always, even till the end of the age. You are not alone. You don't have to do this all by yourself. You are not just part of a small group of people who are just barely getting by. You are part of the global network of what we know as the church of Jesus Christ. The triumphant church of Jesus is still going strong. Amen. And in that message last week, and I really hope you were able to watch it or you can go back and see it, there is a principle that I talked about, which is the oikos principle. And I just want to recap for a few moments here before we get into the next half of our our message. But this is the principle of oikos, is an extended family. You see that the people that you contact with, the people that, that are in your relational world, are not just those who are related to you biologically, but there are also people who have either you've invited into your oikos or they've invited themselves or somehow, as Tom Mercer said, says, on average, each of us have about 8 to 15. Somebody say 8 to 15. There's about 8 to 15 people whom God has supernaturally and, get this, strategically placed in your relational world. So there are people that you are influencing, there are people you are impacting, and many times we're not even aware of it. In fact, I think it's the grace of God that does not let us really be fully aware when we are impacting someone for his gospel and for his kingdom, because if I knew what I was doing, I would probably mess it up. We would probably get in the way, but God has supernaturally and strategically placed these people in our relational realm. You are leading someone somewhere. You are influencing someone either for the cause of Christ or for another cause. And our goal here at New Freedom Church is that we, as the church, mobilize to make that influence strong on his behalf. You see, the word church is not to be just a passive noun that is a a, a building we come to, but the word church is an active verb. It is something that we do and whom we are, not just a place we go to. Amen. So we are the church, and that that scripture in Matthew really challenges me. But there's another one that is equally challenging when I think about impacting the world for Christ, and it's this. Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Now, that's talking to church folk. That's talking to those who have said yes to the claims of Jesus, and yes, I want this Christ to be Lord of my life. He says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This isn't something that is even a high order when you've said yes to Christ. This is a reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Somebody say transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good 
and acceptable and perfect will of God. So when we look at this verse, this is a challenge for us because in these days that that this was written, a sacrifice was very well known as that which you would bring to the altar, you would bring it to the temple, the temple was still in existence in this day, and they would make a sacrifice, they would kill and slay the offering before the altar, and that offering would no longer be living. But Paul has this dichotomy, and he has this in mind, he says, but you as Christ followers are to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, the people reading this would have said, but wait a minute, Paul, a sacrifice dies at the altar. How are we to be a living sacrifice? And here's where he elaborates a little bit later. He says that I take up my cross. I bear the burden of this calling because I don't do it alone, but I do it in the name of my Lord and I die daily. He says, I walk by faith and not by sight. It's not a matter of everything that I can see that I believe because sometimes my eyes will lie to me. Sometimes I may have partial truth or partial facts, but I walk by faith. And so what he's saying is that in Christ, we are to be this living sacrifice. We die to our desires. We die to our dreams and the things that we would want to accomplish in our lives, and we turn it over to God. And here's what I know about turning your life over to God and surrender is that he will take you so much further than you ever dreamed or imagined you on your own could go. He will bring you into relational circles that you could have never imagined going in, but God has this grand design and this grand plan that as a living sacrifice, we present ourselves to him. Dying to our desires, living to him. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to just simply operate in something that is good enough. I don't want to simply just accept the acceptable for my life, but I want to be in the center of the circumference of the perfect will of God for my life. I want my life to be on target and to make a difference for him. And this verse is so challenging to me because it talks about the way this happens is through our thought life. It's through what we believe because of what we have been trained and what we have taught or how we are destroyed based upon our lack of knowledge. It's taking a checkup from the neck up. It is thinking about what I'm thinking about every single day and allowing only the things which God would have good for my life to come into the, my, my eye gate and my ear gate and to pass out of my mouth gate. It is this perfect will of God. And today, Pastor Dennis already said, it, the theme for today being the church is freedom, but it's also this activity of service. When we think about what is our reasonable and acceptable service to God, there is something reasonable in how we serve the Lord. It also impacts how we serve one another and how we serve our local church. In preparing for this message, I ask our team to contribute some thoughts about service. And I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but there are no less than 30 and sometimes more, well more than 30 individuals who are serving every single Sunday to make this service happen. From the kids' church to the media, the technology, it's way more than anything you just see on stage. But it is people serving all throughout the week to get ready for a place of worship. But there is a service that extends beyond these four walls. And here's some of the thoughts that they had. People are gifted to serve the kingdom often through interests, which can lead to talents and ultimately to passions. Here's the thing. Service is not simply done with what's happening up front. But there are many of you who God has gifted you and talented you in your marketplace, in your, in your career, in, in the job that you have, to serve Christ faithfully right there. He's given you a passion for something that you're doing already in the secular world, but it translates into the spiritual world. And God wants to use that. Here's another quote. It says, you don't have to have prior knowledge or experience to step into what God's calling is for you. You simply have to have that step of obedience to say, Here am I, Lord, send me, I will go for you. And here's the phrase that we use around here a lot is this. Are you on the path? Just look to your neighbor and say, are you on the path? The path is the direction connection path. It is how that you get connected to this local church body, but then you you reveal through these three classes that we we set up, it is revealed to you what your spiritual giftings and talents are. And now all of a sudden, when you get on the path, you get connected to the body, but you also get directed into the right way to go for your passions, for your gifts, for your abilities. And God sometimes will surprise us. We have spiritual giftings that we don't have natural talents for. 
And it only gets revealed as we start to dig deep into finding out what is God saying to me. And this is how you find that out is through the direction connection path. So if you're not on the path, if you haven't been uh, through the direction connection path, we would love to invite you in September to come and be part of this. You can sign up digitally online on our website. There's a place to sign up or you can go out to the information desk to find out more information. Uh, We have an entire team prepared to receive you in this direction and connection path. And so we want you to do that. But I think one of the greatest ways that we can impact our world as Christians, as Christ followers, is that we can be well-informed as citizens of the country that we live in and love. How many love the United States of America? I love saying that I'm American. And we as Christ followers can be engaged in how that our country is governed. You see, many believers have been content over the years to just leave politics to the politicians. I think that is a grave mistake. I think that is a deep danger when we just say, well, we're going to offload that to somebody else. We're going to hire that out, or we're going to let things be the way they are. You see, we don't have to be political activists to be active politically in our local, statewide, and national government. But it is incumbent upon us as citizens of this country to be engaged in the process and engaging in things that matter to our values and things that matter to our future. And that's why today I'm so glad to be able to have the opportunity to tag team preach with my good friend, Tim Throckmorton. Let me just tell you a little bit about Tim before he comes. He's going to share with you some history and some things current. I met Tim about 10 years ago in our downtown building. I was leading a group of uh, ministerial alliance here in, in local Lebanon, and uh, I connected with him. I believe it was through Ohio Christian University, and uh, I invited him to come and speak to these pastors, and we were just so taken at his passion for America and the way that he understood our history and the trajectory that we as a people are on. Uh, I guess you could say that Tim kind of placed me in his oikos. We all know what oikos is, right? 8 to 15, he connected me in that oikos. And not long after we met, probably 10 years ago, I started receiving every Sunday morning. Now, most of you, you wait to see me on Sunday morning. But every Sunday morning, early in the morning, I started receiving just a simple little message on my phone, a little text, I'm praying for you, a little little scripture, a little encouragement. We didn't know each other that well. But can I tell you, I started to rely on that every Sunday morning to receive that. Now, maybe he does that to a lot of pastors, but I felt like it was right just to me. And I look forward to that when you can connect with someone and engage. And so this man means a lot to me. He is the Midwest Director for the Family Research Council. And I want you to join in welcoming me to this stage, Pastor Tim Throckmorton. (laughs) Delighted to be with you. Thank you. And I love your pastor. I thank God for your pastor. You're a dear friend. God bless you. It was 1887, excuse me, 1787, and it was hot like it's been here. And in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, there were a group of leaders that had come together. It was 11 years after the Declaration of Independence was signed, and the war was won, and there was a great difficulty because There were 13 colonies. Half the population lived in three of those colonies. The other half lived in the 10, and there were disagreements on a host of things. But through the summer of 1787, they prayed, and they sought God, and they worked together. And when it was all done, Benjamin Franklin emerged, as the others did as well, from this little building we call Independence Hall, in Philadelphia. And a lady on the street asked, Mr. Franklin, what kind of government did you give us? He said, a republic if you can keep it. That's stuck with me over the years. Of all the things he could have said, he told her the truth. We, we do have a republic. We're not a democracy. We are a republic here in America. And it, it's a precious thing. A republic is a, a precious thing that needs attention, that needs involvement, that needs engaged with to keep it what it's created to be, which, by the way, in our case, has brought freedom to us and the world. Through this little 4% of the world's population has come the greatest freedom the world has ever known. 
Now, I, we, are, we, have, we have a republic if we can keep it. We have freedom if we can keep it. We have the blessings of God if we can keep it. Because of what we know, because of who we are, because of what we understand, we've got this if we can just keep it. You know, Paul, when he wrote to the church at Corinth and uh, unpacked for us what we call the resurrection chapter, beginning by quoting uh, or describing for us the people that had seen Jesus resurrected from the dead, naming a few names and giving us some numbers. These folks saw Jesus alive. And then he goes through this incredible explanation of the resurrection, defending it, if you will, apologetically saying that it actually happened. If it hasn't, this, this is where we're up to. Because it did happen, and then he builds to this, this, this climax at the end of chapter 15, declaring that, that death is defeated, that, that sin is defeated, and Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we come together every Sunday, by the way, to celebrate the resurrection. And then he ends with this, this, this line. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Because of what you know, do this. Because of what you understand, do this. Because of what you believe, this is how you are to behave. And God will bless you for it. May I suggest to you that we here in America, unlike any other nation actually on the face of the earth, are blessed with a freedom and a responsibility to act upon that, what we understand. I'm convinced that the way a people views its own history is the way it behaves. Think about Israel. Think about the book of Judges, how that they would draw close to God, remembering who it was that blessed them and created them, and then they would forget and fall away, and then they would come back. But it was that moment where they realized, wait a minute, this is who we are. This is what we believe. This is what we must do. And they came back, and God blessed them. Think of the the, the King Josiah in that era when he brought out the old books and began to read the scrolls and the people of Israel said, this is who we are. This is where we came from. This is how we are to believe. And they drew close to God and revival touched and blessed the land. Even Stephen in the New Testament, his message, the message that, that began this great church that we're a part of and literally got him killed Over and over in his message, he said, recall the former days. In other words, he's calling out to those who he's trying to convince, saying, remember who we are, remember where we came from. And in a day in which we live, where George Barna surmises that only 9% of evangelicals in America have a true biblical worldview. There's a biblical illiteracy that abounds, but there's also, may I suggest, a historical illiteracy that abounds in our nation today. Not knowing who we are, where we came from, and that is a very dangerous place. Daniel Webster says it this way, history is nothing more than God's providence in human affairs. And when you look at history, especially our history, you will see God's hand clearly at work. Charles Kaufman, who was a writer of history texts uh, before the 1900s, wrote, Notice that while the oppressors have carried out their plans in history, there were other forces silently at work which in time undermined their plans as if a divine hand were directing a counterplan. Whoever, he said, peruses our story of liberty without recognizing this feature will fail to fully understand the meaning of history. John Adams understood. In 1776, says he was looking toward the, the, the gathering of leaders for a, a continental congress that would write the Declaration of Independence. He, he noticed this moment that, that they were in and that we are in today. He said, you and I, my dear friend, have been sent into life at a time when the greatest lawgivers of antiquity would have wished to have lived. How few of the human race have ever enjoyed an opportunity of making an election of government more than of air or climate for themselves or for their children. In other words, what we are experiencing now has never happened in the history of the world. No one's ever known it. And you and I are the recipients of that great blessing he refers to. Do you know that in the history of mankind, if you look at everybody that's ever lived in history, they would be in the red up there in that little chart. Those who have lived in the United States of America, less than 1% of all who have lived in recorded history have experienced, only they have experienced, only we have experienced freedom like none other in the history of the known world. 
Less than 1% of everyone that's ever, ever lived. Now, I'm convinced that there's a reason for that. You see, if you don't know why, then you're liable to let it slip away. If you don't understand who we are and where we came from, then you're liable to, to, uh, to allow that disengagement from what, as Pastor referred to, politics and government to, to, to take us in a direction that will remove those freedoms from us and our children and our children's children. I would suggest to you that some of the things that I'm going to describe now played a key role. For example, in 1774, in response to the Boston Port Act, the King of England imposed, imposed the Boston Port Act in response to the, the Tea Party. You know, you've heard of the Tea Party they had in Boston? Well, they, they had a big Tea Party, and, 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 and all the fish uh, had some caffeine injected into their system like never before. And, and so the, the, the king shut down commerce in the colonies, and, and he was basically going to starve them out until they came around to his way of thinking. But when the, the leaders in Virginia, you know, guys like George Mason, Richard Henry Lee, Thomas Jefferson, when the leaders in Virginia heard this, those who were serving in the House of Burgess, they thought, you know what we ought to do? We ought to have a day of prayer and fasting, not do any business here in our government, just, just pray and fast. And so they called for a day of prayer and fasting, passed a resolution. When Lord Dunmore, the king's appointed governor, heard about that, he comes walking into the assembly, waving it, and said, you guys should have called on me and the king. You're all fired. In other words, he dismissed them. And in the back of the room, there was a tall uh, Virginian from Fairfax by the name of George Washington. And he said, ladies and uh, gentlemen, he said, follow me. And they went down the road just a little ways. You can go there today, a place called Raleigh Tavern. Now, I usually clean that up for church. I say Holiday Inn, but it was a place where you, you ate and you slept and so they, they went into Raleigh Tavern. They did two things. They repassed the resolution calling for a day of prayer and fasting. Then they called for a gathering to take place later in 1774 in Philadelphia. And it happened in September of 1774 in a place called Carpenter's Hall, just a few doors down from what we call Independence Hall. And they gathered in Reverend Duchesne before they did anything else. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they asked God to bless. And it was in that gathering where this idea of a United States for America, of America, came to be. Think about this. We began on our knees. We started trusting God, not man. We started relying upon the one that made us in his image rather than depending on the abilities of a human leader. That's who we are. That's where we came from. That's our, that's our DNA, if you will. Just before he died, John Adams, uh, and this guy knew a lot and knew a lot of people, and he was right there the whole time. Before he died, they said, who was it that, that had the greatest influence in the revolution? He did not name Thomas Jefferson or Thomas Paine or George Washington for that matter. John Adams named pastors. He mentioned pastors, Dr. Jonathan Mayhew, Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper, two of the most conspicuous individuals who were a part of the awakening of the revival of American principles and feelings that led to American independence. Founder Noah Webster, founding father Noah Webster said this, the learned clergy had great influence in founding the first genuine Republican governments ever formed and with all the faults and defects of the men and their laws were the best Republican governments on earth. And at this moment, the people of this country are indebted chiefly to their institutions, the churches, for their rights and privileges which are enjoyed. They realized that the churches were the ones that made the difference. They were the, they, they were the influence in that. And God help us today. May the church still be the influence that it's been called to be. It can and it must. Our Declaration of Independence is 244 years old. Our Constitution is 233 years old. At any given moment in the history of the world, there are 30 to 40 countries in the world that are in some type of war or revolution. And they have different governments rising up. France has had 15 governments in its history. Brazil's had seven since 1822. Poland's had seven since 1921. Afghanistan's had five since 1923. And Russia has had four at least. But we here in America... This little 4% of the world's population has lived under the same birth certificate longer than any nation has in the history of the known world. So where did it come from? I talked about the prayer, how it started, but where did these, where did these founders get their ideas? Well, there was a man by the name 
uh, of, of John Locke. He was a philosopher and, and theologian. John Locke wrote a little book called Two Treaties of Government. You can buy it on eBay today. It's 400 pages long. It's a little old thing. But if you look at that book and you think about John Locke, why is he important? Well, John Otis, who was a mentor to Samuel Adams and John Hancock, said the writings of Mr. Locke have been preferred over all others. And John Quincy Adams said this, the Declaration of Independence was founded upon and in the same theory of government expounded in the writings of Locke. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is in those 400 pages, do you know that the scriptures are quoted 1,500 times? That's our founding. Those are our moorings. Those are the principles that, that we are built upon. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I believe that God has placed us in this moment of history. And knowing what we know, knowing who we are, knowing where we came from, it behooves us to respond as believers in this moment like never before. We must engage. We must, we, must, we must respond. We must have our voice heard. Pastor Joe uh, mentioned uh, the voting in the, in, the, uh, uh, in, the, in the first service a little bit. I want to mention that everybody in America, from dog catcher to president, only represents the values of the people who vote. And of the millions of Americans who call themselves evangelicals, only about half are registered to vote. And only about half do vote. And my boss, Tony Perkins, has a great line. Bad politicians are elected by good people who don't vote. Isn't that good? Tweet that, but don't put my name on it. That's Tony Perkins' line. We are blessed to live here. In fact, I, I wanna, there's a line that sticks with me. The fruit of our lives grows on the trees of others. What we do with what we know here and now will matter because people, hear me, are paying attention. Let me suggest, first of all, that the world is paying attention. The world is dialed in on us and what's happening here and now. One of my favorite founding pastors is a man by the name of Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. He lived in Woodstock, Virginia. And after that first gathering in 1774. They needed to have another one. So in 1775 and early 1775, they sent out uh, a call to all the colonies, elect delegates to come back to Philadelphia for another Continental Congress. And they were electing him in Virginia. They went to Richmond and in Virginia, you can go to St. John Church. It's still there today. In that very church, they elected delegates to go. But at that gathering, there was a young man by the name of Patrick Henry, who gave a little speech. If you know your history, you'll know how impassioned he was. And man, he's, he's looking around. He's saying, people say this, people say that. Listen, this is important. We must respond. And I'm going to respond. In fact, he put it this way, give me liberty or give me death. And there was a preacher sitting in that room named Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg. He pastored in Woodstock, and so he's fired up, and he's, he goes back to his church, and he talks about the moment there, and he talks about the influence they should be with what they know and what they understand. This is what we've got to do. And in early 1776, Pastor Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg stands up in his pulpit, and he preaches a sermon from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It's a time for war and a time for peace. This, he said, is a time for war. In fact, he goes on and says, you... You, talking to his congregation, are placed by providence in the post of honor because it is a post of danger. The eyes of not only North America and the whole British Empire, but all of Europe are upon you. Let us be therefore altogether solicitous that no disorderly behavior, nothing unbecoming our characters as Americans, as citizens, and Christians be justly chargeable to us. And then he took off his clerical robe, revealing the uniform of a continental officer, and he asked his men to join him. 300 men joined Pastor Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg, and they formed the 8th Virginia Regiment. They fought alongside General George Washington. And you can go to, you can go to Valley Forge today. I'm going to be in Pennsylvania, be in uh, Philadelphia Tuesday, and when I get there, I'll, I'll drive right by Valley Forge, right by the exit to Valley Forge, and you can go to Valley Forge, and you can see the Muhlenberg barracks built by his men there today. Now, I will tell you as a pastor, when you step out and you begin speaking biblically to culture, not being political, I'm, I'm speaking to issues that are made political, I know that, but, but I'm being biblical. I'm speaking biblical, biblically to the culture, what's happening in the culture, and that's what your pastor is doing. God bless him. I love him for that. 
Now, when you do that, some people don't, don't care for that. They don't think that's a very good idea. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. There are even pastors that say you shouldn't do that. Now, Peter Gabriel Muhlenberg faced the same thing. He had a brother, Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, who was a pastor as well. In fact, he pastored in New York City. And if you know the course of the war uh, with England, you'll know what happened not very long after the revolution began to New York City. And so Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, his brother, said, hey, you all just stay in your church, do your thing, let, let the government take care of itself. He felt that way until the British burned his church. And he thought, you know what, maybe I ought to do something. So he did, and he got involved, and he served in the militia. In fact, you can go to the Bill of Rights, and you look at the bottom right-hand corner of the Bill of Rights, there are two prominent signatures, the Vice President of the United States, John Adams, and then right above it, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, the pastor. Pastors have always been involved from the very beginning. Pastors like Joe Schutz and others who stood up and said, I I know what's happening around us, but this is what the Bible says. And because who we are and what we know, this is what we must do. Thank God for pastors that stand. I was in Israel in 2014, and that's one of the first conflicts where they were lobbing rockets over from Gaza. And I got to see the Iron Dome uh, uh, work, actually. Heard the sirens and, and all that. There were no tourists there. If you've been to Israel, uh, I've been there a number of times, and this is a time where there were no big buses running all around. You go to a holy site, there's a few vans, and that was it. So at Temple Mount, we were there, and while we were there, a small delegation, the, there was a little entourage that came up, and this guy walks up, he starts introducing himself. He's the minister of tourism. He's part of the Israeli cabinet. His name's Uzi Landau. And he's talking to the, the guys. He gets down to the end uh, where I am. I'm the token pastor for this, this delegation and, and uh, doing devotions and praying for him and all that. And he says, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a pastor in the Midwest. And he said, oh, he said, you know, we know. Now, now he's a member of the Israeli cabinet. He said, we know that if the church in America is strong and good, then America will be strong and good. And then he said, We know that if America is strong and good, then Israel will be blessed. The world is dialed in. The world is watching. Secondly, the people we are called to serve, they're watching. They're dialed in as well. Everybody in every church in America understands the same-sex marriage issue. Everybody in every church in America understands the transgender movement. Everybody in America understands pick your topic, and they understand it based on something. This Social media, oh, Lord Jesus, help us all. Or, or the word of God, where pastors stand and say, this is what's happening, and this is what God's word says. Everybody understands something. Now, where do they get their information? A few years ago, George Varner did a deep dive into culture. So this is 2017 uh, data, and so it's fairly fresh. But he asked, what are the number one influences in America today? Now, if you look at that chart, it reveals his findings. At the bottom of the third tier, you'll see the local church. But look at the top of the first tier. Look what's up there. Movies, television, music, books, internet, media, then policy and government, then family. The top five influences in America today are not the Word of God, but those things right there. So not only is the world watching, but those who we are called to serve, they're dialed in, they're looking. And if nothing is said from the pulpits of America, they will get their news elsewhere. And they will form a worldview based on something. You know, from 5 to 13, 5 to 13, they'll form, a child will form a worldview. And Varna says, what worldview they have at the age of 13, they will probably die with that worldview. That's why children are so important in the church. That's why, that's why parenting is so important. That's why influencing those ages, and you know the heartbreak? The heartbreak is that 95% of the parents in America that have children between 5 and 13, 95% do not have a biblical worldview, only about 5%. There's much to do. But because of what we know, because of what we understand, there are certain things that we must do, and we will. The church will. We can with God's help. Who else is looking our way? Well, let me suggest to you our families are dialed in on us. For 166 years, pastors proclaimed from the pulpits anything that they chose to, they felt God led them to proclaim. Period. The government never said boo for 166 years in America. 
In that, in that time span, back in 1803, a pastor by the name of Matthias Burnett was in Connecticut, and he was asked to preach to the Connecticut legislature. The new governor was elected. All the, the cabinet members are sitting here. All the representatives are here, and there's people up in the balcony. And so he preaches to them. He takes his Bible. He says, this is what God's Word says. This is how you ought to govern. It's a novel idea, and we ought to practice that. Somebody said amen. Good thing. We'll do that. Well, then he turns to the people that are in the gallery, and this this is what he does. He looks at them, and he says this. Finally, you, whose high prerogative it is to invest with office and authority or to withhold them by voting, and in whose power it is to save or destroy your country, consider well the important trust which God has put into your hands. To God and posterity, you are accountable for them. Let not your children have reason to curse you for giving up those rights and prostrating those institutions which your fathers delivered to you. Hey, he said, your children, they're paying attention. Then lastly and most importantly, God is paying attention. The world's looking, people we serve are looking, our families are looking, and God understands right where we are at this moment. In fact, it was God who lovingly has entrusted the stewardship of this moment in history to us and placed us here in that 4% of the world's population called the United States of America, to which I will tell you, everybody around the world's watching. I, I serve, uh, I, I'm a member of the, fam- or the, uh, uh, the Council for National Policy. And I was in Washington last week, and we had a, a meeting, a gathering with a lot of leaders. Um, president stopped by for a few minutes, but there were a lot of leaders there. And let me tell you, I, I was made aware of the people in parliaments, leaders in governments around the world that are praying for you to do the right thing here in just about 70 days. They're praying for America. They're praying for the pastors of America talk about this. People who have, haven't known freedom, their grandfathers and their, their, their ancestors haven't, but they have found freedom, the, and they know that that's in the balance for them if something changes here in America. They know how delicate this is, not just for us, but the entire, the entire world. And God entrusting to us this stewardship, as Pastor Joe said in, in quoting uh, Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Because you know what to do, we must do it. And in doing so, not only will we and our families be blessed, the entire world can be blessed by our actions. In 1976, um, I was a a kid then. I wasn't able to vote until 1980. But 1976 in Kansas City, Missouri, the... Republican National Convention met, and they nominated Gerald Ford to be the candidate for president for the Republican Party. And there was a guy named Ronald Reagan who was kind of vying for that. He's out in California. He's the governor. And so Gerald Ford uh, invited Reagan to come down and make a few remarks, and he did. You can go to YouTube, and you can watch him today. Cool thing. And But he, off the cuff, his off-the-cuff remarks included a little observation, and he's talking to the folks there about a, a letter he's been asked to write as governor of California. It was going to go into a time capsule to be opened at the tricentennial of California 100 years later. And he's, he's talking about that letter, and he said, you know, what would you say? What would you write to people? What should I put in the letter? What would you put in the letter? And then he said, it occurred to me that I will never know those people. I'll never see them. I don't know what their world will be like. I will never know them. But he said this, they will know me and you. Those who come beyond us, those who live beyond us, they will know us and they will know what we have done with this moment in history. They will know how we have responded. They will know how we have stepped to the plate or not stepped. Our actions will be a blessing or a curse perhaps to those who will follow us. Back to Benjamin Franklin and I'll land this plane. Benjamin Franklin's in the Constitutional Convention. Before he comes out, they're in there, and they, they can't get anything done. Again, you got half the, half the people in three colonies, the other half in ten, and they just can't get this all sorted out. 
And Franklin, Franklin uh, is pretty much quiet inside there. He doesn't say much until they, they just get to the moment of impasse. Uh, historian John Bancroft said that, that George Mason, George Washington's neighbor, got up and he was headed out. He said, I've got farming to do. I don't have time. I've got things to do. We're not getting anywhere. And Washington begs him back in. Franklin stands up, and he hadn't said much, but he's the elder statesman. He's the guy that was there from the beginning. It's 11 years later. Think about this. 11 years later, listen to what Franklin says. He addresses the chair. Mr. President, the small progress we have made after four or five weeks, close attendance and continual reasonings with each other, our different sentiments on almost every question, several of the last producing as many no's as yeas, is... Methinks a melancholy proof of the imperfection of human understanding. We indeed seem to feel our own want of political wisdom. Some, we have been running about in search of it. We have gone back to ancient history for models of government, examined the different forms of those republics, which having been formed with the seeds of their own disillusion now no longer exist. We viewed modern states around Europe, but find none of their constitutions suitable to our circumstances. In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understandings? Get this, in 11 years... In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, he said, we were sensible of danger and we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. And all of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? I have lived a long time, sir. And the longer I live, the more convincing proves I see of the truth that God governs in the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. And these men adjourned for prayer. They prayed for a few days and they came back and they handed us, they gave to us the longest living document providing freedom for this, this part of the world and blessing the entire world. You see, America is unique. America is exceptional. And this 4.4% 4, 4, 4, 4 of the population has produced more, more symphonies, more inventions, given more money, been more charitable than any other nation in the history of the world. And taking the gospel all around the world. We're in need of it now. As Joe said earlier, they're sending missionaries to us. We need a revival. We need brought back to God so that we can be who God has created us to be and raised us up to be on the face of the earth. I serve the Midwest for the Family Research Council. I cover nine states from Pennsylvania to Missouri, Michigan, Wisconsin, Kentucky, and West Virginia, wherever else I'm asked to go providing resources, equipping, and pouring into pastors trusted, trusted information that they can use and quote and, and use to, to bless their ministries and their outreach and their communities and their world. That's what we're here for. We have a vision where life is valued, families flourish, and religious freedom thrives. Those are the lanes we run in. And let me tell you that there are pastors all around America who, just like yours, are standing up. And they're saying, you know what? The church has to do something. We can't sit back any longer and just wait for things to happen. We're not just going to be the thermometer that tests what's going on. We're going to be the thermostat. And we're going to set the temperature. We're going to set the tone. And we're going to engage our culture. We're going to engage in civic mindedness. We're going to vote, but we're also going to have folks in our churches going to run for office. And I know pastors that have run for office. I'm not suggesting that by the way, but I'm telling you pastors in America are speaking up like never before. And I'm excited about what I'm, I'm seeing everywhere I go. And I'm thankful for your church doing what you're doing, saying what you're saying, standing like you are standing. I have um, been blessed by two Precious grandchildren. How many of your grandparents? Raise your hand. When you, when you, you, become, you become a grandparent, you become legacy-minded, for one thing. You think about things differently than you ever thought. And, and a couple other things happens. You, money means nothing to you. Amen. 
Time, time doesn't mean anything to you because if I've got things to do uh, and they come, Papa, I'll come here. Forget that. Okay, what do you want? And I, 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 I'm there. Three years ago, I stepped away from a great church. I pastored for 22 years, the last seven of those in Circleville, Ohio at Crossroads Church. Great church, big campus, buildings, staff, the greatest pastor's uh, assignment you've ever imagined. And God called me away to do what I'm doing now. My granddaughter, who was six at the time, said, Papa, you're not pastoring. What are you, what are you doing? So I remember she's eating some ice cream or licking on an ice cream cone, looking up at me with blue eyes, like, what do, you, what do you do now? So I'm thinking, how do I explain this to her? And I tried a little bit and fumbled around. It wasn't, she wasn't dialing in on it. Finally, I, just, I said, honey, just, I'm just trying to save America for you. And so she said, okay, licked her ice cream, went off, and she's done. She's okay. The next, the next day at school, she went to a school uh, then close to us, uh, and, and the teacher, her teacher was one of our former church members from years ago. And her teacher said, Kyrie, I heard, your, I heard your grandpa retired. And she said, no, he didn't retire. He's saving America. And that's on her way. See? <laughs> this afternoon, this afternoon, I'll go home. I was in Virginia, Washington last week and Michigan up until four, four or five days. I got home late Friday night, and, and um, I leave for Pennsylvania Monday. She will be there when I get home today. Pastor Joe invited me to lunch, but I, I'm going to go home. I'm, I'm going to go see them. They'll be there. And she will ask me, just like she always does, where are you going this week? Sometimes I get out a map and show her. Sometimes, I, sometimes we just talk about it, what's going to be there. But inevitably, she says to me, Papa, are you going to save America for me? I will charge hell with a water pistol for that little girl as you would as well, for yours. That's them. That's your little brother Spencer. That's Kyrie. And I will leave you with this. You can put any sweet little, think about your mind, who, who belongs up there, because if you had the PowerPoint, you'd do the same thing I'm doing right now. Think of that little child 20 years from now, 50 years from now, looking back on this moment. As Reagan said, they will know. They will know whether or not we have risen to the occasion, whether or not we have said we must do something, and whether or not we have prioritized and remembered not just who we are and where we came from, but where we must go. God's entrusted this moment to us, and I have the greatest confidence that you in this room will do the right thing. God bless you. Thank you, Tim. Please remain standing. It's an honor to call this man my friend, part of the Black Robe Regiment. Maybe not literal robes, but robed in the robes of righteousness for his name. I did something the last couple of weeks that I don't know that many in this room have done, and I've asked several. I sat through every night of our two-party system in this country, the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention. Someone said, why do you do that? Well, I'm kind of a glutton for punishment, I guess. But I am interested in what those who are vying for the highest positions of our land think, say, and believe. But don't think that this fall, the only thing on the ballot is a presidential choice. Because there are people running for your school board there are people running for your trustee township. There are people running for judges and for state representative and state senate in our state that will influence not only our tomorrow, but the next generation. And that matters. And here's what I can say after sitting through and watching, tuning in every night to those two, is that the die has been cast. The difference is stark. And we have a decision to make. Now, I would not stand up here and insult your intelligence to tell you who Pastor Joe thinks you should vote for. But I do respect you enough to provide you some information, some history, some background about who you are and where we came from. So that I trust 
by the leading of God's Spirit, when you open up your copy of the Word of God, that your conscience is informed. And you will stand up to be counted. If you're not registered to vote, let me just shame you a little bit from this pulpit. Register yourself to vote. You need to be engaged. Half of the Christians in this nation are registered and only half of those vote. That's one quarter of us. You know, if we would show up, then we could turn this nation back to God in one election cycle. But let me tell you as a pastor, it doesn't make the biggest difference who's in the White House. What makes the biggest difference is who's activating in God's house. That matters. And so we're going to sing a song here. We're going to close in in this song. And I want this song to sink in. Before we sing, we're going to pray for Tim. There are some resources out in the lobby on the table. Uh, There's some some things you can pick up. They're free of charge. Just pick those up. If you need more, we'll we'll get you some more. We want you to be informed. But I want you to to reach your hands this way as a sign of blessing. They would do this in in Jewish circles for for many, many years as just a sign of reaching out a blessing. You know, to to travel nine-state territory and be away from his family, it's a big task. And there are a lot of challenges, not just the travel and the coordination, but there are attacks that come upon someone carrying the gospel of the good news. So we want to bless him. Father, today we thank you for this gift of your servant that you have brought our way for this time and season. And God, we find ourselves right now in a moment, in an Esther moment, that we have been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so we pray today as the New Freedom Church is engaged in a year of prayer. We pray and we lift up Tim Throckmorton. We lift his family to you. We ask that you would guard him and and guide all of his travels, that you would give him traveling mercies. You would give him the words to say, the, the tongue of a ready writer, to speak a word in season to those who are weary. Father, we lift up to you our nation. This division that we find through racial lines and political lines, that is not of you. And we lift up the United States of America to you and we pray that they be united, that we not be divided. We humbly submit ourselves to you because you are a holy God. And we're going to sing about your holiness in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. I'll be right back. Let's sing this song together. Thank you for joining us today. I just can't wait for next week. You're not going to want to miss it. Thank you for sharing on social media, and please subscribe. And if this message has impacted you in any way, would you just write a rating or review for us so we can reach even more people with this message? Your generosity really does make a difference. So to give, please go to newfc.org and click on the giving tab, or click on the link in the video description. We love you. We'll see you real soon.